How has your diverse background in research shaped your current research? Well, I'm kind of fearless. I, I, uh, I've published in so many areas that I think all research is the same. It's, the, it's really finding the right questions and then ask, answering them using scientific methodology. So I found, for example, in, in education research, a lot of it wasn't done very scientifically. And McMaster, and particularly in health sciences, there's a long history of asking questions about education, but in a scientific way, in a way that's um, statistically valid and analytically valid. And uh, so, you know, I, I really prospered in that environment because that's the way I did science. I always felt that it was just find a great question and then go ahead and try to answer it. And so it's made me, uh, realize that all research is the same in that way. You have to ask really good questions and then find uh, solutions for them. But one of the problems is everybody can ask a good question, but can you design a study to test it? And it's, that's the difficult things. But I've done it in a bunch of different areas, so I, I think it's all the same in that regard. And so I'm quite happy to do whatever, you know, sort of project comes along because I'm pretty confident that I know how to design a good study. What drew you especially to the VR and AI aspects of research and education? I'm really easily excited about questions. Um, I've always, for example, really liked computers. Um, I, when I was an undergrad, uh, I remember having to type my computer my, sorry, type my thesis up on an electric typewriter, thinking this is the worst thing in the world. And then when I, I got to start my master's, we were using computers to digitize the output from these smooth muscles that we were looking at. And I thought, that is amazing. <laughs> it's so much better than anything else I'd ever seen. So right at the beginning, I thought, I really got interested in computing. It was like a hobby. I never really thought that you know, that I would continue being interested. Like I was building my own computers and, and taking all that technological interest. So I was just really interested. And so when this idea that virtual reality was going to take over, I was already interested. I mean, I always thought that was a really important thing to answer. Uh, a really important questions were there to be answered. And so I decided to follow that. But it's not like a grand plan, you know. It's not like I woke up one day and, and the gods of science said, you know, you're going to look at virtual reality. I, I, I just thought it was really interesting. And there were questions I could ask that, that I think I could solve and that nobody else was really asking. So that's it, you know, it's not, it's, it's not, it's not like divine intervention. <laughs> and, and someone hands you, you know, this magical tablet that tells you what you're supposed to do. You just, you just find interesting questions and pursue them. But I always like computing. And so, you know, that was something that pushed me in that direction. How does learning differ between virtual dissections and cadaver work? On the surface, um, cadaver work is very awkward. You have to get cadavers, you have to fix them. 
You have to have a special facility that's secure to use them. They're expensive. They, uh, they break down. Uh, you can't exactly bring them home with you to study. So there's lots of very difficult things about working with real human material. On the surface, virtual reality looks like the perfect solution because it looks quite like real human material. Uh, if you dissect in virtual reality, you can put the stuff back on. You know, when you dissect in reality, once you've taken off a layer of tissue, you can't put it back on. All the super glue in the world is not going to rebuild the cadaver. And so in virtual reality, you can go forward and backwards. You can build them up and take them apart. So on the surface, it looks like it would be easy to make a virtual reality dissector that is much better than what you would do with real material. And, and so I presume that that would be the case. And so I just tested it. You know, we built different types of <laughs> virtual reality. Like we have a virtual reality dissection of the pelvis and we built the virtual reality dissection and then we built a model that is physical, that does exactly the same things but it's just made of, of printed material and then also stitched and sewn material. And then we compared that to learning on a simple plastic pelvis. It turned out that people did better on the simple plastic pelvis than in virtual reality. And with all those things going with VR, how come that was the case? And, and so that just kept me up at night. <laughs> I really wanted to know why that was the case. And so what we began to do was to try to think what were the reasons. Is it because there's more cognitive load now? Cognitive load is this idea that you can only take in so much material and if you take in, you, you're saturated. <laughs> you get saturated with what you can learn. Maybe virtual environments saturate you more than learning in a real 3D environment. That's a question we're asking right now. And we're measuring cognitive load. Another thing is that one thing about VR is that the it can be difficult environment from the point of view of nausea. Uh, and I'm one of those people that really has a bit of a hard time in those types of environments. I mean, it's, and it's not just virtual reality glasses. Like, you know, I, I get car sick, I get plane sick. I mean, there's probably, you know, there's probably rocking chairs out there that would make me sick. And so, is that a problem? Because, but we don't know if that's affecting how people learn in that environment. So we're measuring that. We're trying to figure out whether people have some cyber sickness in that environment. And so that's another part of the experiment. So not just whether they learn or they don't learn. It's a question of do they learn better uh, in one environment than the other. And I, I think the problem has been that so much of what we see in virtual reality is developed by a company trying to make money on virtual reality. So they don't want to hear that maybe it's high cognitive load. They don't want to hear that maybe people have cyber sickness. And so we're breaking that down and testing out each individual aspect to see which one. And, and that's really the only way to, to, you know, kick the ball down the field. Right? The only way to progress is to find that where the mistakes are, where the problems are, and then go forward and, and 
get better. And the, the other thing is that VR assumes everybody's the same. You know, uh, everybody doesn't respond in a virtual reality environment the same. <laughs> There's no question about it. Some people are very comfortable in that environment. Um, there's some people we put virtual reality headset on and they'll almost fall right over because their inner ear is not really very good. Like their balance is really bad. So you, you take away their vision and, and they'll fall down. I mean, so we're all different, right? And whereas we all can work in the physical, normal physical environment, many of us probably can't work very well in a virtual environment. But those are difficult questions to answer. And there's also questions that people who are selling virtual reality equipment don't want you to know, right? So there's lots of promise with VR, but until we sort out the problems, I think a lot of that promise is not going to be fulfilled. Uh, and, and lately, that's really been like almost like an obsession because I'm tired of people saying, it's the future. It probably is. It may well be, but none of us live in the future. <laughs> we live now. And if, if, I've got to put these, if someone says, okay, your course is going to be done on this, on this Oculus. Now, if there's 10% of the people get sick when they put this on, that is the worst solution ever because nobody gets sick when they handle a plastic model. And they might not like handling cadavers, but cadavers generally don't make you fall over because of cyber sickness or anything like that. So those are the things we, we really have to investigate. I mean, if it's 20% of the class, we better think of a pretty good solution uh, for it. But uh, yeah, so that's that's part of the you know part of the questions that I'm answering, I'm asking, and hoping to answer. But every time I seem to answer something, then there's a bunch more questions. And it's the same with artificial intelligence. You know, we we have these uh, objectively structured practical exams or bell ringers and. You will be familiar with them because, you know, you put a pin in and then you have to say what it is and then you have to say what it does. And those are really hard examinations. They're much harder than multiple choice exams and things like that. We love them because they really test bringing up that knowledge from deep within your brain, right? Somewhere deep in your cortex, you have that answer. It's not like a multiple choice where mostly you're just recognizing what appears to be the right answer and, and often two or three of the answers are stupid anyway. So it's hard to do these. You know what's really hard about them is marking them <laughs> because people are creative. They put a pin in and then you say, okay, usually you can pick up what they measured, what they actually meant with the pin. But then when you say, now, if I break this, what'll happen? Well, you're thinking that if, you know, if I remove blood supply to this part of the brain, they won't be able to read. And somebody else will say, well, if you remove this part of the blood supply to this part of the brain, they might lose their ability to, you know, have vision in one eye. And you're like, oh, maybe, because you don't know. So the thing is that marking them is super hard. And so I was talking to some colleagues about really difficult questions in anatomy. And one of them is how do we keep these bell ringer exams? Because they take so much time to mark. It used to take us days to mark, you know, for one class. And I said, you know, I wish there was a way to do it. And I was kind of laughing. I said, you know, I wish artificial intelligence could work on things like this. Because, you know, sure, it can do some things, but those are easy compared to marking it. And, 
And the postdoc that was working with us, uh, Jason Bernard, Jason said, did you say that's impossible? <laughs> He's like, that's a challenge. And so he designed a decision learning tree, uh, which is a type of uh, uh, algorithm in, in AI, to mark them. The very first tree we designed was 95% accurate. I mean, just blew my mind. So I wasn't that interested in AI, but we got this really cool result. Now I'm all in. I'm <laughs> I'm all excited about AI now, and it's, it's opened my uh, eyes up to a whole new uh, world of, of uh, teaching and learning, because it's, it's, I've gotten into so much that the journal that I'm one of the editors for has asked me to edit a whole special edition of the journal just on, on artificial intelligence in, in education. And it's, it's funny, because you'd think there would be a lot of people maybe interested in that. Well, it turns out that if you look at education and AI, mostly it's asking about how you educate the AI, <laughs> how you make the AI better, not how AI will help people learn. And so that whole thing has turned out to be really, really challenging because it's not well explored. So just strictly because I, I asked this interesting question to a postdoc, we have a whole new area of research that we're going into. It's kind of like the printing. Um, we, we scan the hip. So this is a, uh, a hip bone here, an os coxa, as we say. And uh, one of my uh, summer students at the time, Josh Mitchell, who works for me, Josh had scanned a beautiful hip bone with a structured light scanner because we had gotten one to make objects for virtual reality. And so Josh comes to me and says, I want you to see this 3D scan. It was so beautiful. I couldn't believe it was so, it, the detail was so great and it looked fantastic. And I said, Josh, you know, we should print some of these up. And uh, he said, okay, sure. What size do you want? And in that one moment, I realized nobody had ever asked that question in the history of anatomy because hip bones came in hip bone size. Sure, there's a little variety in people, but all of a sudden, it was a whole new area. So we designed a study called Size Matters to try to figure out what is the appropriate size for a learning object. Now you'd think somebody would know that answer, but it's not true. <laughs> we don't know what the right size object is to learn from. So we've been, for two years, we've been looking at exactly how that is, and we just had a paper accepted looking at how size of the object affects. Where did that come from? One student saying one phrase, what size do you want? And I couldn't answer him. So you see how research is funny that way. <laughs> all you need is one good question and then you try to answer it. So we printed up stuff in all sorts of different sizes and saw how people learn from them. And, uh, and now it's all part of our research protocol. And, yeah, it's, 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 it's just little questions, little, like Jason saying, well, you know, I'm sure I can do that. You know, that's a challenge, you know, and, and, and Josh saying, well, what size do you want? And, and, it's, and somebody saying, you know, boy, I, I love the VR, but I'm so sick when I come out of there. <laughs> it's, it's listening, right? And, and sort of thinking about what are good questions to ask. 
and I, I'll just ask any question. I, I feel like I'm old now, so I'll just ask what I want and see if I can find answers. So it's yeah, all of our projects are, I think a little bit similar that way. How can we mitigate the nauseating effects of VR? We spent a lot of time trying to figure out if people are cyber sick in, in VR and then what makes them cyber sick. Because, because we're trying to, we really need to know that answer. So a couple of things that we, we know and that other people have found as well, if there's any lag between when you move your head and then the object moves in that virtual space, so we have got some very powerful computers <laughs> driving our headsets now. So when we increase the frame rates up to like 100 frames a second, and we increase the resolution to sort of 4K resolution, then we have a lot less problems uh, in, those, in those environments. So we think that's helping. Um, one of the other things we're finding out is that depends on... Um, uh, how much correction you have in your glasses. Now, neither of you have glasses on. Most students <laughs> seem to need vision correction because we spent so much time staring at books, possibly. So it turns out that if you're really highly myopic like me, you tend to have a harder time in virtual reality environments. So one of the things, for example, I want to pursue is the effect of myopia on cyber sickness. We don't, we don't know that. We, like, we actually don't know the answer to that. Um, we have also found, for example, that if you have even something simple like keeping people sitting, they tend to do a little bit better than when they're standing and moving around because there's less random motion going on. So we're trying to mitigate some of those effects uh, that we see in, in uh, virtual environments. But, yeah, you know, but there's only so many, so many experiments we can do uh, at once. And I... You know, I'm very systematic. I only want to change one thing and do the experiment to find out if that's actually what's happening. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's hard and there's only so much time, you know, to answer all of those questions. But What is your research philosophy? Good research is always a simple question. I think oftentimes people say, you know, your research, is, it seems it's simple. That's actually a compliment, because if you can't explain your project, then it's probably not very good. <laughs> it, it, it usually uh, has to be elegant and simple in order for it to uh, really work out for you. Or maybe I'm just simple. It, it, that might also be the case, so <laughs> there you go. How does your research translate to the classroom? So I do, I do different types of research. Some of it is what I would call reductionist, limited environment. We learn like one piece of, of anatomy in several different environments and we change one thing. And, and so, for example, we might have this one in virtual reality and then we might have it in augmented reality and then we might have it in autostereoscopic and then we might have it just normal, like in a normal environment and then we'll see which one we learn better, and then maybe look at the difference in cognitive load to try to work that out. That's very reductionist because it's only one piece of anatomy. Somebody will say, yeah, that's true for the, for the oscoxa, but it's not true for everything else, <laughs> right? So the other type of research we do, uh, and there's a project we're doing with the Cleveland Clinic right now, 
and it's a, a whole module on learning the clinical anatomy of the pelvis. And so the idea there is that someone comes in and they present with a problem uh, that's soluble by understanding the anatomy. But the idea is that by learning that anatomy in a clinical context, they will uh, learn faster and maybe retain that material better. And so that's, there's a lot of different things between doing that in a virtual environment. We have designed it all to work in a virtual environment. But then we're also doing it in a 2D environment, so just on a, a regular screen. And then we printed up all the materials to do it in a, in a physical environment. But there's a lot of differences. No matter what we try to do, there's a lot of differences because there's all sorts of different anatomy. So that's a pretty broad study. So in that study, if we find that learning in that clinical environment makes it better, we can't exactly say what it was about that environment that did it. You see, because we've changed too many things at the same time. But it's more clinically useful. That's more useful to my colleagues because they're more likely to say, okay, well, let's design more virtual environments in a, uh, for learning anatomy, not just blank backgrounds in the middle of nowhere. Like most virtual reality is not like a gaming environment, right? If you go and play you know, Call of Duty or something, and it, <coughs> there's a very rich background. Incidentally, we, we do everything in Unity, right? So it's just same programming language you use uh, for you know video games or Unreal Engine, right? So it's all the same stuff. But those environments are so rich. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Like even if you're not a gamer and you look in the background, you're like, wow, that's really cool. You know, they got you know, they got all sorts of clouds and buildings. Well, most of the time when we do VR in education, we get rid of all of that. Like it's just the object. Is that good? Yeah, exactly. I, I, you guys can't see it who are watching this video, but he just went, no, I don't know. I don't know either. But that's what we're looking at, right? We're, we think of this as biophilic, you know, like an environment that makes you want to be there. You know, so <clears throat> maybe in a virtual environment when I'm learning anatomy, it'd be nice to have it in palm trees and maybe on the beach. I, like, I don't know those things. So this, this experiment with Cleveland Clinic is a nice clinic and there's beds and, you know, it looks like you're walking around in a clinic. And so does that help you? It might make it feel more clinically relevant. Um, so that's, you know, that's another type of study we do, right? We don't make everything <laughs> reductionist down to, you know, changing one thing all the time. Because we need both of them. Um, you know, it's, it's easier to generalize. Uh, you know, a, a project like the clinical anatomy VR study, because that's the way people learn. Uh, but it's not as specific, and, and you, your conclusions are always a little less firm, because you've changed a lot of things at once. But I like to do both. Uh, so we're hopeful. <laughs> we're hopeful that those things will be uh, will, will come together. You know, that one study informs another. They're all building blocks, we like to think. Uh, each experiment builds on the next one. And if we find out, for example, if we find out in that virtual environment with the clinic, it really helps, then we might start manipulating that virtual environment. 
Should we have people walking around in the background? Should we have more plants? <laughs> Should, you know what I mean? Should we have that person standing there talking to us? Because right now, we sort of see the scenario, but the, we, we more or less just see the anatomy. We don't really see the person. So is that better? Might be. Hard to know. Um, but, we, you know, we can start taking those bigger studies and then focusing in on different areas. So that's, uh, that's what we try to do anyway. What are the educational implications of cadaver use? So they're huge. I, they're, I can tell you that we know that uh, from interviewing students. So one of the other types of research I do is on ethics. So I publish a few papers on ethics of the use of cadaveric material and the use of uh, cadavers after medical assistance in dying and, and things like that. And also looked at dissection anatomy versus learning from already dissected material or plastic models. And the, when you do dissection and you use human material, the weight of seeing a real person because is so um, dramatic. And we get this qualitatively all the time. People will say, I didn't really care that much about, you know, heart was just this thing that I saw. And then you put a heart in their hands, a human heart in their hand. And, and you know, some people like will cry. Like some people will just, like this person was in my community a few weeks ago and look at, you know, there's their heart. And look at that, that mitral valve. It's got some damage to it. Um, you know, and it, and it's amazing. And yeah, that's so that that's huge, huge weight. And that's a really hard thing to do in virtual reality is to is to um, regenerate the what we call veritas, the, the reality of of the situation. And I, you know, as much work I do in virtual reality, um, I think that. Almost every student would benefit from doing a doing dissection themselves and learning anatomy in that way, and not just because they learn anatomy, right? I always laugh. People say, "Oh, I teach anatomy and physiology." I always tell people, "I think it's like anatomy and philosophy," because people they learn so much about the human condition. You know, you, you there's so many examples. Like the first time that you that you take the cloth off and you look at a body that's come in and you see what always gets me is you'll see maybe the nails were painted. It was, you know, older older person comes in, their nails are painted and, and you just think, you know, some family member just a couple weeks ago, even though this person was dying, thought, you know what, we should, you know, let's just put really nice nail polish. And maybe that was like a great moment for them. Or or somebody comes in and you know, and there's they're so frail. Like you see someone comes in and they died of cancer and, and you know, there's almost nothing left. And you just think, what was that like? You know, sure you can learn the anatomy. They, they have the muscles and the bones and, and the other structures, but, but there's that whole other level of understanding the human condition that you just don't get uh, from, from VR environments. So, I'm very, that's why that biophilic environment thing is for me like really exciting because maybe we can build in, maybe we can build in better case studies and, and, and maybe more compelling 
views. I don't think you'll ever replace the human body, nor, nor would you want to. You know, we, we do a lot of surgical skills in the lab, and, and somebody was saying, well, you know, what about virtual dissections and virtual uh, uh, clinical skills learning? I said, it's, that's probably a great way to learn, except in the end, we treat real patients. And, and so at some point, you need more reality than you can get in the virtual world. I'm not saying you can't learn that way, but it's, it's fundamentally different. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's so many challenges. I could live a thousand years and, and still have research questions like that. As VR and AI technologies become more advanced, do you think they could eventually replace physical clinical learning? So, yeah, th there are a lot of uh, surgical robots, and, and we have a brain-based surgery course that we run in the lab, and um, they're amazing in their ability to be able to get in and, and carry out parts of the surgery. Um, but uh, surgery is not like driving your Tesla. <laughs> um, it's a very, very elaborate environment. So where they're good is like putting the equipment in the right position. For example, when we do the brain-based course, um, they're CT scanned, and then you feed the CT image in so that the robot knows where the person is, and more specifically where their pituitary is, because that's the surgery that they're doing. There's a, there's a lot of... Um, AI in the recognition of where all the objects are, right? And there's a lot of robotics that are driving uh, the surgical instruments in the right space. But in the end, there's a tr it's a it's a partnership between the surgeon and the robot. I don't see in the near future where that will well that will go away. There's, there's going to be a more things that the robots can do, more things that the AI can advise you on. But it's a partnership, at, at least for the, you know, at least for the near future. Um, it's it's an interesting question, and I'm, I'm not fundamentally, you know, a, a surgical skills researcher, right? Though I run a surgical skills lab, um, it's not my fundamental area of research. But in the end. It's not, it's not about the equipment and it's not about the AI driving it, it's about how it works, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Because there's people that come to me and say virtual reality is good for everything, or, or AI, that's the solution. And I'm like, what does that even mean? You know, it's a, there's a huge amount of human input that goes into designing how AI systems work. Right, people act as if it's the robots telling other robots what to do. No, it's, it's dummies like me figuring out questions and helping the AI learn so that it can help us, right? It's just a tool and, and the history of man is the use of tools. So now we have more tools, but <laughs> it's all about how you use the tools. See, VR is like a hammer right? And hammers are great for nails, but people think it's good for everything. So that's like running around with a hammer all the time looking for nails. Or, I want to open that door. I think I'll do that with a hammer. I'm not saying it won't open the door, but it's not going to do a very good job, right? So, you know, it, the idea is that humans as tool users 
is is going to continue to evolve as the tools get better the partnership gets better but that's what we're looking at right we don't think VR is a, a solution it's a tool so let, how do we make that tool work better to me that's not VR that's us trying to figure out how to make better tools and make them work better how do you go about weighing the costs benefits and risks associated with technologies you're interested in investing in well, I'll tell you it's very simple this is the newest Oculus Quest you can get. It, it's fairly expensive. And if you look behind me, I, I have about four or five of them, maybe more, in boxes. In two years, this is worth nothing. It's a piece of junk. And I'll be buying something else. For the amount of money of this, I could buy a plastic model. There are plastic models that, I, that we have been using since I was a grad student here. So, to me, this is a problem. People think virtual reality is, is a solution, but there's a cost always to these things. And what happens is that you get so caught up in this idea that it's going to be the solution. You don't realize that this equipment, why do we think this is going to last longer than your laptop? Two, three years, and your laptop's time. So all that money that's put in there is not put into other resources. It's a zero-sum game. If you're going to buy all of this, then you're not going to be fixing up other materials. And so sometimes what happens is that people get so carried away, they let their other resources fall apart. And so managing an anatomy lab is, is balancing out that. So I always tell people, I don't want to be the first person to use VR. I want to be the person who uses it right, or uses it best. Because being first <laughs> is a good way to waste a lot of money. And, and we're more interested in testing it so that when it's ready for everyone to use, we're going to have the right equipment. Uh, and we're spending a lot of effort on that. And we're lucky because we do get research funding, so it doesn't come out of my, my budget. So I would never want to get rid of you know, a summer student who's making beautiful cadaver materials for students to learn from because I bought a new laptop. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Or a new set of goggles or something like that. But it's, 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 it's difficult because people have a, a sort of religious belief <laughs> that because the technology is new that it's necessarily better. Uh, and, and, you know, medicine is, has a long history of, of assuming that because it's new, it's better. That it's always, oh, we have this, this is new. And, and it's luckily, at least in, in, in medical science, you test out something. You test out, is it better than what came before? In virtual reality, you know, in, in the AI often, people don't really test it out. They just assume because it's new, it's going to be better. And so we, we fight against that. You need to prove it. To, to prove that you can learn in virtual reality means nothing. Of course you can learn in virtual reality. That's a stupid question. The question is, can I learn in virtual reality better, more efficiently? Uh, something, something. Tell me some reason why it's better. Not that you can learn. Everybody knows that. I mean, nobody sells virtual reality goggles and says, oh, yes, this is better than nothing. 
doesn't sound like a very good marketing strategy. And yet, you look at the papers and they, they often test it against nothing. They just say, oh, it's virtual reality. Somebody learned. Oh, big deal. People learn all the time. So what we're interested in is, do you learn better? From your experience, what is the best way to engage students for long-term learning? There's, there's two things that really get students going. So, in, in, at least in my experience. And one of them is just being in the lab, interacting with the specimens. Um, the medical students today were, were pretty excited about some of the material that we were showing them. Uh, we were talking about the thyroid, and they were like, oh, I guess thyroid makes thyroid hormone. And then I said, okay, so of course you're correct. Now, what happens? Where's the thyroid going to grow if you get a goiter? And so they're pretty excited about that. And so we, I, then I showed them a goiter. And they're like, I had no idea <laughs> that's what it looked like. And so that, that students love, love that aha moment when they actually see a goiter. Or, or like everything in anatomy is, is, is quite real and physical. So when they see a goiter and they kind of have it in their hands, like they never forget what a goiter is. So that's incredibly powerful for people to learn, or at least it gets them excited. The other thing, and, and students don't like it so much, but testing is an amazing way to help people learn. And nobody likes testing. If faculty don't like setting tests and marking tests, and, and, and students don't like the stress of tests. But testing is a way of learning that the, that, that um, stress of preparing material and organizing in your brain and then bringing it up on a test, that challenge is, is a fantastic way to learn. It's, it is difficult and stressful, but it's amazingly effective. And there's been lots of studies done where if you give people the option of being tested a couple of times versus learning a couple of times. They actually learn better if they're tested rather than relearning the material. Um, the, the other thing uh, that I, I think can make a difference, so I said two, but there, there's one other method that works pretty well, and, and that is the, uh, uh, the entertaining presentation of the material. So not just the material, which usually does really well, but you know, if you get an instructor who's uh, who shows insight into the material and they're enthusiastic about the material and they're prepared, like they really know what they're talking about, it's, it can be really transformative for students. I think that there's a problem a little bit in, in the last 15 or 20 years where people say, well, students know exactly what they want to learn and they know the best way to learn all of that material. Now, in general, I believe that students do know what they want, but that instructor who can get up there and show insight and enthusiasm for the material uh, and is so well prepared that you just feel like anything you ask them they can explain and how it works makes a huge difference. Um, I'm biased that way because I, I like to be able to do that and the instructors that I really enjoy were like that. They, they were so insightful about the material and so well prepared and they had such enthusiasm it was absolutely uh, compelling 
you just you just felt that if they were that excited it must be really important and and that they showed some real insight that just stuff you never thought about and they brought in all sorts of different you know metaphors and they compared it to different areas and and that narrative about how things work the strength of narrative in teaching is incredibly strong like the body is just one big story and it's made up of all these different smaller narratives and and if you could tell that small coherent story which is hard because you need to have a lot of knowledge that really brings students along they they just want to they just want to know how the story goes and how it ends you know so sometimes it's you know the little thyroid hormone that could like why is that interesting and how does it work um, and anything you know anything can be like that so th those are the things that I think work anyway for students that I found work for students as far as I can tell what is your advice for anyone interested in research in artificial intelligence and virtual reality I think the advice that I always give people about any technology is look for something that needs VR. Don't look for applying VR everywhere. VR is a tool. Look for something that's broken that it can fix. Right? I had a problem with marking bell ringers. So I used AI to solve the problem. I didn't run around saying AI is the solution to everything. You should know enough about VR so when you see a problem, you say, wow, I can solve that with VR. For example, when we were developing the virtual reality bell ringer technology, the little platform we had to, that we just published on, someone said, you know, what other environments could we go with? So I talked, was talking to people in the nuclear reactor, and we decided that the one thing that VR would be great for is to see the core of the nuclear reactor. Because you can see the core of the nuclear reactor, but just once and then you're dead. Right, so this can bring you into the So we used VR as a tool to show us this thing we couldn't see any other way. So if you're interested in VR, find where VR is needed. That's the trick. Don't just run around saying VR is a solution to everything. Because it's not. Right? It's Use it as a tool. Where does this tool fit? If it's a screwdriver, where's the screw that it will turn? Right? That's what I've always thought was a good idea. I hate when people say that. I do VR. And I'm like, I'm done with you. <laughs> like, I solve problems. And VR is a great solution for some problems, right? But it's not the solution for every problem. Like if you start that way, like, like you, like maybe it's hybrid. Maybe the best way is a little bit of VR, a little bit of that. Like next year, we want to put VR headsets in all the tutorials for A and P to see what things we can learn in VR. Maybe it'd be really interesting to swim through the heart. 